Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. All right, so this morning I have the very, I mean, quick and easy task of going over the wisdom books. If you don't know what the wisdom books are, that would be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Easy. Not a lot there. I mean, we're just going to zip right through. It's not like Psalms has 150 chapters or anything like that. So, um, yeah, so we're going to go over those today. I tried to structure every single book, and we're just going to go book by book as we go through this. I tried to structure every single one the exact same way. So as we're going over your outline here, you can take notes off to the side. I left some blanks at the bottom of each one so that you can take notes that way. As I was writing this thing out, um, I started typing up everything for Job, started typing up all my notes for Job, went back and looked at my notes for Job and realized that I had an entire Sunday school class just on Job, so I had to take out a ton of stuff. So that means that we are either going to still go long or I'm going to end way too short because I just overestimated. Um, If you guys remember at the very beginning, the very first class that we had of this, one of the tasks that Bryce kind of tasked us with was to be able to open up our, our word and know exactly where we were every time. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and get it out real quick. And just, and this, this usually works with a non-study Bible, just a heads up. But if you have a non-study Bible, just open to the middle. I'm going to guess if you have a non-study Bible, about 75% of you opened up to one of the wisdom books. Some of you probably opened up to Isaiah. I did this like three or four times, and I kept opening up to Isaiah, and then I realized I had a, a study Bible, and it just wasn't working out. But So most of the time, whenever you open up your Bible, you go to the middle, you're going to hit Psalms, Proverbs, sometimes Ecclesiastes, just depending on how your Bible's structured. That would be the wisdom literature. So we ended last week with some of the histories. Now we're in wisdom. Uh, just a quick note, I meant to do this at the very beginning, but just a quick couple of house cleaning things. If you were to see my wife today, I'm only saying this because she's not in here, it is her birthday. So say happy birthday to her. The second thing is, usually whenever I teach a Sunday school class, I usually wake up at around 4 a.m. the Sunday of and just kind of go back through and clean up my notes, clean up my PowerPoint, review everything, all that kind of stuff. I did that this morning. However, there was a little hiccup with it. So if there's any misspellings in my PowerPoint or in your, your handout, you can thank this little girl for it. <laughs> that was taking it 4.15 this morning. She woke up and decided she needed to, to uh, read some books with me. If you look, there's a chair in the background. That's where she started, and that was not going to work. So she came up and just started screaming at me at 4.15 to sit in my lap. So if there's anything wrong with anything that we're going over, uh, outside of it being, if it's theologically wrong, yeah, come up and talk to me. Outside of that, it's her fault. So, <laughs> so what is the wisdom literature? Uh, if you remember last week, we went over uh, some of the histories. Now we're in the wisdoms. So the wisdoms, as we discussed already, that's going to be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So some of the things you can go over here is the, the wisdom literature's are kind of different from most of the books that we've gone over so far. Most of the books that we go over so far are narratives. Um, my mother-in-law this Christmas got me a, a Bible, and, and one of the ways that they structure this Bible is that if it's a narrative, it's in single column. 
so it's easier to read. It kind of comes off as just reading a book. But whenever it's poetry, it's double column. If you have a Bible like that, what you'll notice is that first two chapters of Job are single column. The rest of Job is all double column. Then the last chapter, part of the last chapter of Job, is single column again. And then the rest of the wisdoms are double column. So the distinct kind of neat nature of the wisdom books is the fact that they're literature, they're, uh, they're not narrative. They're all poems or they're songs or they're prayers. They're all Hebrew poems primarily. Excluding those first, those three chapters I talked about there in Job, most of the books are going to be poems. And they're going to be Hebrew poems, which are also a little bit, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a poetry guy. I had one class in college where I had to read World War I poetry, and it's actually kind of interesting to read it if you look at it from a historical standpoint. If you look at it from a poetry standpoint, it's still poetry. It's still not something I'm really interested in. However, the poetry that we have here is completely different because it's not man's poetry. It's inspired poetry by God. So it's poetry that we can actually apply to our lives and get as much as we possibly can out of it to better ourselves for God. The first book that we're going to get into is Job. Job is an a very interesting and amazing book. We get some glimpses into to things that we don't get glimpses into in some of the other books of the Bible. It's also a very hard book to understand in some ways because what it deals with is the mystery of human suffering and the problem of evil. The real question that a lot of people ask whenever they're reading through Job and once you get to the end of Job is why do bad things happen to good people? we would understand that there's not necessarily good people. We just have a good God. However, whenever you look at it, you look at Job, and he's, he's known as an upright man. So the question and the dialogue that we see within Job is going to be stationed around why do these good things happen to bad people? What is the nature of evil in our lives? Also, why is there human suffering? Especially you know, for us that have come to know the Lord, why do we still suffer? So the structure that we have behind us is going to be the structure we're going to have for each one. So I'm going to have a summary, which is just a brief, real quick summary, then a date, an author, and also the main characters. I kind of stole that from Nate on his. I really like the way that was structured. So the date for this is actually unknown. What's interesting about this book is there's, there's a lot of debate about when this actually happened, when this was written. I lean towards, and uh, I believe MacArthur also leans towards this. Not that I'm saying I'm anywhere near MacArthur. But uh, although the, the author of Job is uh, anonymous, the Jewish tradition chooses Moses as the author. We're going off the earliest, earliest idea of when this was actually written, and the earliest people say that Moses wrote this, which would mean that this is actually one of the earliest books in the Bible written. If it's true that Moses wrote this, then it would uh, place Job as being one of the first books written in the Bible. However... Some claim that the author could also be Job himself. Some uh, consider, uh, I believe, I, saw, I read a couple of commentaries that said that it might be Solomon, just in the way that it's written. I've heard a few after Solomon, but most people think it's going to be Moses. Considering the, the book of Job states that he lived 140 years after the book, so at the very end of the book of Job, it says that he lived another 140 years, that would put his lifespan to fall somewhere in the pre-Abraham time period because of just how long he lived, because he, he lived long enough to have these children, and we see him suffering through this entire story, and at the very end, he continues to live for another 140 years. That means he, he lived a really long life. 
We see that really long lifespans happening during the Abrahamic and, or pre-Abrahamic time periods. Um, there's also evidence within the book of Job that it took place before Abraham. Um, since he's not even identified as Jewish, we don't see that identified anywhere within it. Uh, also, he does not mention the laws or Exodus, which is kind of strange when you consider the, the information that you get within Job. If he doesn't mention laws and he doesn't mention Exodus or anything like that, that would kind of make it seem like it would have happened before those things. All of these things actually end up pointing us to the understanding that the, the known, the, although the date is unknown, it most likely happened sometime before Abraham, the story itself, and that, the, that makes the author most likely Moses. The characters within Job, who wants, I mean, without looking at the screen, considering I didn't put, you know, hide it from anybody, who are the main characters of Job? Job, yep. All right, we got that one. I will accept Sunday school answers. God is one of the characters. Who else? Job's friends. Job's friends. <laughs> the really good ones. And then also Satan. Yep, and Elihu, which is an amazing character within this thing. So yeah, the main characters that we have here in Job are going to be God, Satan, Job, Job's friends. I kind of lumped, although he's not necessarily, I kind of lumped Elihu into Job's friends. But we'll see why he's not really within Job's friends here in a little bit. The first, so the structure, this is also how we're going to do it. So you're going to have the summary, date, all that, and then we're going to structure out these books because a lot of these books are really hard to get your hands around. One, there are a lot of them, especially Psalms, is really long. But on top of that, they jump all over the place. So that we're going to try to create a basic structure as we're going through this. So the, the structure of Job, you have a prologue, which is the background of Job and his life. You also have a uh, dramatic dialogue. It's a dialogue that's written within po uh, poetic form. And then finally you have an epilogue, which is the restoration of Job's life. So the dialogue would be that narrative that I was talking about. The first two chapters, it's, an, it's a narrative. You're walking through a story. Then as you get into chapter three of Job, you start to shift into uh, poems but it's dialogue poems, so we'll, we'll go over this here in a minute, but it's, it's conversations happening between Job and his friends and Job and Elihu and then also Job and God later on. And then the epilogue, we go back to a narrative because we see that Job is restored and we get to see what happens with Job after that point. So the first two chapters, first two chapters of the prologue. So it's actually a really interesting back and forth narrative between Uz, which is where Job would live, and then it's kind of, no one really knows exactly where it's at, but that's where it's estimated to be on that map back behind me. And so we keep going back and forth between Uz and heaven. And the first scene, and it's broken up almost like a Shakespearean play, and the first scene you actually have the land of Uz. So we get, to, we get introduced to Job at the very beginning. We get Job's background, that he was a wealthy priest for his family. That's another reason that they think that this might have been written by Moses, is the fact that it shows him or talks about him making sacrifices for his family. So he actually would have been the priest for his family, but it never mentions him being within that, that line of priests. So that's another reason, because the, the way that he's worshiping God with those sacrifices make it seem like it is pre-Abrahamic. So we see that he is uh, wealthy, he's a priest for his family, and he actually has a full family. He has many children. The second scene 
that we have is actually a scene of the heavenly court. So we get a scene of God as Satan. So we, we see God sitting on his throne. He has angels around him. It also says he has Satan there. Satan pres- or, uh, goes before God. And God asks Satan if he has considered his servant Job. To which Satan replies, due to the hedge of protection that God placed around him, he cannot touch him. And then dramatically at the very end of it, we find out that God allows that hedge of protection to be removed from Job so that Satan can start tempting and putting Job through some trials. What's interesting about that is it shows the power that God has. A lot of people, especially those outside of a good, strong Bible teaching church, have some kind of false idea about Satan, that he's this all-powerful, almost equal with God, that he can do anything he wants. But in reality, we understand that nothing happens anywhere at any time to any molecules without the hand of God. So we see that God removes that hedge of protection from Job and allows Satan to try him. I can't remember. Okay, so then we go, we have this, that's scene two. Scene three is back in the land of Uz. When we get back to the land of Uz in scene three, we see that calamity start to fall upon Job. His wealth is taken from him by that. I mean, all his livestock, another reason why they think it's in the age of Abraham. He was wealthy because of how much livestock he had. Some of it's killed, some of it's stolen, but by the end of it, we understand that all of his livestock's gone, so he went from being one of the wealthiest men in this area, probably the wealthiest man in this area, to being one of the poorest men in this area. Then on top of that, more dramatically, all of his family is killed, all except for his wife. And it's when we also see his wife tell him to curse God and die. I've listened to a sermon one time and it was it made some sense I haven't done a lot of detailed information into it but some people believe that the reason that uh, Job's wife told him to curse God and die is that there was this false understanding that because he was a righteous and upright man God wouldn't let him die and his wife was suffering so much watching him suffer that she told him you just need to curse God so that he will let you die whether or not that's true whether or not that's how we should read that I thought that was kind of an interesting take on it but yes Fact though that their relationship was maintained. Yeah. 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 That is a good point. Dan says that even with his wife telling him to curse God and die and giving very bad counsel in that, the relationships maintained. And at the end of this, we'll see that they actually continue to have children once this is over. So um, that was scene three. We're, We're. the calamities happen. So then we're back to heaven. And we see that Job did not curse God and die. He did not become an unrighteous man through all these calamities. He continued on in his uh, love for God through the trials. So we get another glimpse into the heavenly courts and Satan comes to God and says, well, you won't, you won't let me touch his health. You won't let me touch his body. That was the one rule in the first scene of heaven was that he was allowed to do anything. He was, took away the hedge of protection, but he was not allowed to touch his body. So then we see in the second time we uh, get a glimpse into heaven that his body is now allowed to be touched. So his body's touched. He gets these painful, very painful, in scene five, boils from the soles of his feet to his head. And that brings on the poems. So we shift from that narrative so we understand the story of Job. We get the background. We understand what's going on. 
three of Job's friends show up, and we also have Elihu sit, sitting in the background, and they begin this back-and-forth dialogue. There's three separate rounds of this. All of them te- keep the same structure. The three rounds consist of Job making some kind of speech. The first one's a lament. And then we have Elphaz makes a speech. Then Job responds to that. And then you have Bildad making a speech. And then Job responds to that. And then Zophar, I'm so proud of myself for getting through those. Zophar makes a speech. And then Job responds. The only difference is in the last one, Zophar does not make his speech. It just transitions to Elihu. What's interesting about these three is that uh, in each round, Job's friends become less and less understanding of God's ways. So as these poems go on, you see Job's friend getting kind of a little more aggressive, but they also understand less and less about what's going on as they try to give counsel in some way to Job. But at the same time, you see Job actually becoming more and more understanding of them. Finally, after that third round, we have Elihu. Elihu gives two speeches as well. Elihu's first speech is actually rebuked to Job for justifying himself and blaming God. So Job starts to focus on how righteous and upright he is and starts to question his understanding and starts blaming God for some of the things happening. And Elihu says, no, you can't do that. And he rebukes him for doing that. And then the second speech is actually to Job's friends. And um, he, the speech that he gives to Job's friends is that God is never guilty of injustice. And if, we were in, if he were to withdraw his hand, so the, the kind of one of the understandings behind Job's friends is that, they, that Job had withdrawn his, or God had withdrawn his hand from Job. And Elihu basically tells him that if, if God withdrew his hand from Job, then he would utterly perish. If God withdraws his hand from anything, then they utterly perish. So then we get into... I messed up my notes here, so I'm going to go along with you guys. So we get into God's challenge to, to Job. This is one of my... I mentioned this in my testimony last week. This is one of my favorite chapters of the entire Bible is chapter 38 of Job. And the first thing that God says, he comes to Job in a whirlwind and starts to respond to his, challenge, or to his questions and his uh, laments and things like this. And what we get is a picture of understanding our place in it all compared to God's place in it all. So Job tell, or God tells Job to dress for action like a man, depending on what version you're looking at. Uh, dress for action like a man, which is basically, I'm about to challenge you and you're going to try to answer me. And then he goes through and he just walks Job through the entire creation and, and makes Job understand that he doesn't understand any of it, but God's in control of all of it. Uh, R.C. Sproles has a great book, but I'm blanking out on the title. But in it, he talks about how there's not a single rogue molecule in the entire universe that God is not in control of. Because if there was that one rogue molecule that could destroy all of God's plans and nothing can destroy all of God's plans. So if God can control every single molecule, then he is more powerful than any of us can ever imagine, even understand, let alone get close to. That's basically what we get a picture of within uh, God's rebuke of Job. Okay, so then we get to the last chapter. At the very end of that, we have Job being restored. So this goes back to a narrative within this form. 
Uh, we see that his prosperity is restored. He actually gets double the livestock that he had originally. And then his family is restored, and uh, he gets back his seven sons and three daughters, and then a long life lived another 140 years. What's interesting about his sons and daughters is it seems like his sons, based off of what we can see, it seems like his sons and daughters were living with the Lord. So one of the commentaries I read, and I never really thought about this, would mean that his, his family was literally doubled, because it means that if these seven sons and three daughters continued on with the Lord as well, then in heaven we would understand that he has double the amount of kids in heaven. All right, we're going to get on to Psalms, and I'm way behind, so we're going to have to breeze through a little bit. I structured Psalms just a little bit differently as far as just the, the detail of it, because it's not, there's no narrative in it at all. So the Psalms, the summary of it, it's a collection of poems, prayers, and hymns. About one-third of the Psalms are laments. That's, that'd be a pain-filled call of distress to the Lord. The date ranges are huge. It goes from Moses, we see in Psalms 90, which we'll get into a little bit. It's actually a Psalm of Moses. And it goes all the way to the Babylonian exile. So it's a really long date range that would all have been compiled into the Psalm. The authors vary. We go from David, like I said, to Moses, to Solomon. And there's many others within that. And then we have the structure. It's actually structured into five different books. If you look at most of your books, like I'm looking at mine right now, and book three starts at Psalm 73. So there, if you look, a lot of your Bibles you should have book, book one, book two, book three after these. But the books are uh, compiled into three different, or I'm sorry, five different books. Chapters one through 41 are book one. And we see in uh, one through 41 that it's, it's primary. I'm going to try to get a basic summary of what it is. So you have a lot of distress in that, but also a lot of confidence in the Lord being uh, expressed throughout those psalms. Book two, you have 42 through 72. There's a lot of lament and distress in that. It just progressively gets a little bit darker. Book three, a lot of questions of God's justice. However, they're also reined in a little bit with, uh, God's, uh, with the light of God's presence. Book four is chapters 90 through 106. The tone lightens with a focus on God's rule and reign. And then book five is chapters 107 through 150. It's a focus on prayers uh, and promises and the law of the Lord. So what we're going to do is I'm actually going to, I picked two verses out of every one of the books to kind of have a, a brief understanding. And what I literally did is went through these sections and just started reading some of them, picked some out to kind of give an example of what these distresses, these confidence, what the light is, all that kind of stuff. So in book one, can you guys read that? All right, so book one, I, I chose chapter five, verses one through three, and it says, Give ear to my word, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord. In the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So we can see a little bit of distress in that, but it's not really all that dark. But it is kind of groaning. He's asking for God to consider my groaning attention to my cry. So we see that, but we also see that he's still going to prepare sacrifice and go to the Lord. And we also see that there's some confidence in book one. So in Psalms 18, one through three, it says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. In book two, we go back to some distress. And it's a lot of distress within book two compared to book one. So book two, you have 
I chose Psalms 44, 9 through 11, but you have rejected us and, dis- and disgraced us and have not gone out with, your, with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have sh- scattered us among the nations. And then we also have Psalm 69, 1 through 3, save me, O God the choir master, according to the, the lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come upon my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And then in book three, we get a little bit darker with some... Um, some darker tones with some of the Psalms. So Psalm 74, 1 through 3, O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your angel or anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the, per- sorry, my eyes just went all over the place. Direct your steps to the peculiar ruins. The enemies have destroyed everything in the sanctuary. See in Psalms 86, 1 through 7, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant to you, O Lord. Do I lift up my soul? For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Then we get into book four, and it takes a shift. What's interesting about book four is that uh, it starts with Psalm 90. And Psalm 90 is a psalm written by Moses. So what we see here is it gets progressively a little bit darker. There are, I chose some dark ones there, but there are some lighter ones in there that kind of lift you up a little bit as you're reading through it. However, Psalm 90 takes a shift because it's Moses. And what we see here is that they insert the Psalm of Moses here, and it's a, a reminder to the nation of Israel who they are and that they're chosen by God. We have a a, a deep reminder of the fact that God has been with them through it all. So we have all this distress coming up, and then all of a sudden you're reminded, hey, God has been with you through all of it. And the reason we know that is because we have Moses. We have all these writings up to this point. So Psalms 91 through 2, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We have Psalms 105. I'm sorry, I'm way behind on this. So 105, 1 through 6, tell of all his wondrous works. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord 
and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgment, judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servants, or his servant, child of Jacob, has chosen his chosen one. And then we have book five, which is a lighter book. We have Psalms 107, one through three is the one I chose for that. Let the redeemer or let the redeemed of the Lord say, Oh, or say so, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeem, redeemed of the Lord say, say so, from his, for he, my goodness, say so, he has redeemed the troubled and gathered in from the lands, from the east to the west, from the north to the south. So, we see in the Psalms that it gets a little bit darker and then it gets progressively a little bit lighter. One thing that's amazing about the Psalms, and I'm getting a little personal here, is that so whenever Dad went to the hospital three months ago, no, two months ago, I don't even know how long it's been, he went into the hospital, got flown down here to ICU in Evansville the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, so however long that's been. So whenever he got down here, I was actually reading through Romans in my quiet time. So we got him down here, we got him in his room, things just progressively got worse and worse with him as he was getting in here, and I would still try to get a normal routine going so I could get my mind right. I, my routine in the mornings, I usually wake up at 4.15, go downstairs because none of the kids are awake. It's very quiet. I sit down in our office, and I'll read through whatever my quiet time is. And I would get into the, to Romans, and it would just, I mean, I think this is kind of a standard thing that happens to believers, but it just it wasn't penetrating. Like, I would read it, and it would just be me reading it. I just didn't feel it. And so I would read through what I normally read through, and I knew that that, that, that wasn't good enough. And so I would start flipping through and I got to the Psalms and the Psalms of lament just struck me. I mean, they hit me hard, but they hit me hard in a way that you could just feel the presence of God around you. And so, uh, as we were going through this, it took a lot for me to read that Psalms 86, one through seven, because that's Jess one day when I was at work and dad took a bad swing. Uh, I text Jess the update. We always text an update in the morning and in the evening because that's how quickly things were changing with that. So we would text in the morning, and I got that update while I was sitting at work, and I forwarded it to Jess, and I almost went home, because it, it was just a bad day. And she texted me back, that Psalms 86. And if you remember, Psalms 86 is, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. And all of this was just what I honestly believe about my dad. My dad's been in ministry for 30 three, 34 years at just the church that he's at now, not counting where he was before that. Um, if I needed to find my dad, I knew that I could find him sitting in his study getting ready for Sunday service or for Wednesday or something like that. So like the way that I look at a godly man is, is my dad. Cause I can honestly say that if I look at my dad, I can, like Paul was saying, follow me as I follow Christ. So that Psalms 86 is a Psalm that I, on some of the darkest days when I knew that it, it was, I woke up and I knew it was just going to be a rough day, I would read Psalms 86 and I would pray over Psalms 86. And that's the amazing thing about Psalms is that we can, on our darkest days and our lightest days, we can find a Psalm that we can get into. And even if we just don't have the strength to pray ourselves, we can get into the Psalms and just pray a Psalm, just go over a Psalms. There's a reason that the Lord gave us these. And that's to help us grow more in our love and understanding of him, but also help us through some of the dark times, knowing that we're not alone. We're never alone. 
Um, I think I have it in here. Okay, so the book that I use a lot of this for, I want to make sure that we walked away from this with more than just, you know, information. But there's a, a book called, and this is actually something that uh, Justin Geyer sent me. It's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercies. And what it is, is it's a walkthrough of the laments, or how to understand the laments, but also how to pray lament. It's a really good book. I would suggest getting it, even if you're not going through a hard time. Get it, learn it. Next, we got the Proverbs, and we are through two of our five books, so we're going to start flying. Okay, so the summary here is uh, knowing God's wisdom and instruction and learning to live well. I listened to a sermon on this by Tommy Nelson, and Tommy Nelson put it wonderfully in that the psalm, or when we look at the Proverbs, no human on its own could have ever written this book. The book of Proverbs can be described as learning to swim upstream in a downstream world. Where do I get that? Whenever we see the world, we see the world would describe a good life as being rich, whereas Proverbs says that we should be generous. The world would say that we should promote ourselves. Proverbs, we see that Proverbs would tell us that we should let others praise us. The world says that staying out of people's, or we should stay out of people's business, whereas Proverbs would tell you that it's better better open rebuke than hidden love. The world would say riches bring us happiness. However, we see in Proverbs that whoever trusts in his riches will fail. The date of this is around 700 BC. Uh, Solomon is the primary contributor. However, we know that uh, it was later, these Proverbs were later compiled under Hezekiah's reign. So we'd put it around... uh, I think I wrote that wrong. It, it'd be under Hezekiah's reign is when it was all compiled together and when we first see an actual book of Proverbs. Um, final, like I said, final form of the book was compiled within Hezekiah's reign. Solomon was the main contributor, placing most of its originating date being around 900 B.C. Because we know that's when Solomon was alive. And the author is primarily Solomon. However, there are two other authors that are mentioned. I think there might be another one, but it's Ag... I can't even pronounce his name, and King Lemuel, Lemuel. But it's unknown who those people are. Some people even say that the King Lemuel is actually Solomon. So the primary author of this is going to be Solomon. So the structure that we have, you can, kind of, you can build almost any structure you want out of, Sol- or of Proverbs because they, they go all over the place as far as they're not like nicely condensed into like, this is, this is where you go to for riches. This is where you go to for family. They're all intermingled with each other. However, what we can see with a structure is that we have man's relationships to God. And examples of those is we have our trust in him is in uh, Proverbs 22, 19. Uh, tests with God are 17, 3. Our sin is in 18, 13. We also have man's relationship to himself. And examples of those are our character. That'd be Proverbs 20, 11. Wealth would be uh, Proverbs 11.4. Anger would be Proverbs 29.11. Then we also have our relationship to other, others. Examples of that is how we love one another. It would be 8.17, how to be a father. 27, about gossiping. 20.19. Man may be wise in the world's standards, but only true wisdom comes from God. I got that from this other book that I wanted to present to you guys. It's called Living Well by Alan Mosley. It's a good book. It's easy to read. It's it's just about the Proverbs. Um, 
lost my place. There's another quote that I really like, and it kind of goes hand in hand with the Proverbs, and that's that uh, somebody once asked this elderly lady, as this pastor asked this elderly lady, uh, what is failure? How would you define failure? And she defined failure as failure is being successful in something that just doesn't count. I'll say that again. Failure is being successful in something that doesn't count. What the Proverbs does is allow us to understand what counts. It helps us guide our lives through living, with, living alongside the Lord, growing an understanding of the Lord, and just how to live well. That's that book there, Living Well. Our next one is Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes, uh, whenever you ask somebody about Ecclesiastes, actually whenever you ask somebody what are, what's the most confusing book of the Bible to you, Two of the top three are going to be Revelation and Ecclesiastes almost every single time. And it's understandable why whenever you start reading through Ecclesiastes, if you, if you don't understand how to read through Ecclesiastes. The summary of it is finding the meaning of life. It's a confusing book, but if we understand the, if, but the, understand, or the key to understanding it is the well-used phrase within it, under the sun. So whenever we understand that, whenever we understand that whenever Solomon, who's the author of this, which is up there, uh, whenever we understand that Solomon's the author of this and he's, he keeps saying, he actually uses that term under the sun 29 times in this. What he's saying is that all of these things are ways that I try to find the meaning of life under the sun. So as he's on earth with his own human understanding and they all fail I mean, one of the first phrases within Ecclesiastes is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So we understand that uh, if you understand that the meaning doesn't come throughout the entire book, that it's actually most of the book is how to fail at life until the very end. If you read every single one of the Ecclesiastes chapters with the understanding that he's talking about human failure more than wisdom of God, that's the key to understanding Ecclesiastes. It's a confusing book because it seems like it's contrasting everything else that you read in the Bible. But in reality, it's Solomon saying, don't do any of these things. Because anything done apart for the work of God is going to be failure. Ecclesiastes is a collection of human wisdom, not divine, until the very end. It's inspired. However, it's Solomon, like I said, telling us how to fail, not necessarily how to win, until the very end, of week, in the very last chapter. The date is in uh, late Solomon's life. It's probably around 930 B.C. Uh, the reason we understand that is Solomon goes through and explains all these things that he tried to do to find the meaning and happiness of life. But what do we know about Solomon early in his life? That's a general question for everybody. Whenever I say Solomon, what's one of the first things that you guys think of? Wisdom. So we understand that he actually asked for wisdom whenever he first started reigning within Israel. And if we see that Ecclesiastes, that he's now talking about all these failures that he did, we understand that his trajectory started drifting further and further away from the Lord. Uh, one of the first things that happened with that, and he talks about it in Ecclesiastes, is that he started bringing in foreign wives, and he started bringing in more and more wives, and he started abandoning what true biblical marriage is. And that led him further and further away as he brought in foreign wives. He also brought in foreign gods into the land. 
He drifted further and further away from the Lord. So if he's going through and talking about how many ways that he failed, it wouldn't be at the beginning of his life. It would be towards the end of his life and the end of his reign. So I would place it somewhere about 930. So the structure of Ecclesiastes. The first point I have here is all is vanity, and we see that in uh, chapters 1 through 6. We see that all is vanity in intellectual pursuits. That's chapter 1, in pleasure, in the cycle of life, in life... um, Life's inequalities and religion and politics and riches, all of those things are vanities. And that's all chapters 1 through 6. And then we see a shift and we have life or advice for life under the sun. That's chapters 7 through 12. We see the good and the better, chapter 7, wisdom. Is chapter 8, and that's man's wisdom. Enjoying life is chapter 9, the wise and the fool. And chapter 10, uh, spreading good is chapters 11 through 12. And then finally we have an epilogue, so the end of this book. And it's only chapter, or chapters 12, verses 9 through 12. And it's the best thing under the sun, and that's when we finally get Solomon saying that anything done apart from God is just vanity. It means nothing. So the meaning of life is making sure that we align our life with the Lord. Anything else done apart from the Lord is failure. Then finally, we have, I think I might have put a resource in here. Yeah, so if you've never watched or been through a small group that went through Tommy Nelson's uh, Ecclesiastes study, you can get it online. I'm pretty sure it's pretty cheap. It's, It's outstanding. How many have seen this? I was told by my wife that if I don't say Rocky Road, two scoops, that I'm in trouble. But Tommy Nelson in there talks about how a lot of Christians take themselves very, very seriously and like to the point that they can't even enjoy ice cream. And he said, you know, after this, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with some Rocky Road, two scoops. And talks about how he's going to enjoy life because he knows that he can enjoy ice cream to the glory of God. So, all right, that brings us to Song of Solomon. The summary of this is the praise of marriage and the delight of love. It was written sometime between 971 BC and 931 BC. That would be during Solomon's reign. It was written by Solomon. Unlike the rest of his romantic life, the Song of Solomon displays a deep understanding of the necessity of the purity of, of marital affection and love. This book displays God's plan for marriage and the importance placed on it by God. It, dis- it also displays the sanctity of sexual intimacy between husbands and wives as well. We see the structure for the Song of Solomon is we have three main points. That's courtship, that's uh, chapters one through three, the wedding, chapters three through five, and then finally the marriage, which is chapters five through eight. So what this is, it's poems between Solomon and a lover, and just explaining, you know, how important intimacy is within a marriage and how important intimacy is and how sacred marriage is and things like that. So that brings us to the end. However, I didn't want to end with just, hey, here's a bunch of information. So I really wanted to go over. We only have a few minutes for this. But I'm going to open up the floor. Usually don't do this. It makes me nervous. But I'm going to open up not because of you, because of, of, of what might come at me. But... How can we apply Job? With the information that we have and just past information you might have about Job, how can we apply that? Other than just looking at it and being like, oh, okay, Job had boils. 
Okay. How, how can we apply it to our lives? So Mike there, I think I'm being recorded. So what Mike said there is that it reminds us of the sovereignty of God and um, that trials and struggles can push us into a better relationship with God. So one of the ways that it's always helped me is that it, it helps me understand my place. Uh, having it's something that we do really well here is having a very high view of God. But we can say that, but what does that actually mean? We see that in Job and that Job explains to him that I'm controlling all of nature and I am sovereign in all of that, and I am good in all of that, and I'm also good in what's happening to you right now. So, what about the Psalms? How can we apply the Psalms? I already gave my story, so I want to hear one of yours. Psalms helps us pray. Yes. What's said there is that Psalm helps. Psalms help us know how to pray, how to cry out how to praise the Lord, things like that. So, What about Proverbs? Shows us the way to live. Yes, shows us the way to live. A lot of people, Proverbs is their favorite book, and the reason for that is because you can go to it and find many answers to many things that you might be confused by. What about Ecclesiastes? How can we apply Ecclesiastes? The very straightforward and understandable book of Ecclesiastes. Yes. How not to live. I think Ecclesiastes also shows the antithesis of the wisdom of the world to the wisdom of God. All right. What about Song of Solomon? shows us that marriage and love is good, that we can enjoy our marriages, our intimacy, our spouse, because it is designed by God and is good because it's designed by God. So. All right, let's close in prayer. Does anybody have any questions? We're kind of out of time, but... Okay, I will close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this time. We thank you for being a God that provides a safe place for us to gather together and that it is a place that is focused on you. Just pray that this church would continue to have a love and a desire to know more about you, be focused on you, be focused on how amazing your word is and how remarkable it is that you even chose to have it inspired, that we can understand you more through it. I pray that as... uh, we leave this place that we apply all these things to our lives as much as we possibly can, that you would allow us to know how we can do that to better our understanding of you and our love for you, dear Lord. Uh, Whenever we leave this place, just uh, instill in each of us a desire to be in your word more and more. 
to have a, just a, a feeling that no matter how much we are in it, that it's just not enough, and just a love for your word, dear Lord. Please be with Bryce today as he brings us the word. Just allow us to um, have an open ear to understand what he's saying and that you would use him to bring us to you, dear Lord. In your name we do pray. Amen.